it's really interesting. So I, so I had this sense that I was really doing it wrong because I'm, I've, I spend most of my time not living in the moment, you know? And then I read something recently by either Dr. Kabat-Zinn or Dr. Davidson saying, no, 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 you know, we all do that. We all do that. And so it's all about returning to the present moment. And that's the verb, returning to the present moment when you catch yourself looking in the rearview mirror too much. And here we are returning to the conversation to start off the podcast. We're so mindful right now. (laughs) You're ridiculous. But all jokes aside, that was one of our biggest takeaways from our interview with Dr. Stephen Wingle. Yeah, I was joking there, but the emphasis on returning rather than always being in the present moment captures mindfulness so well and gives people grace to fail at it. It's basically impossible to be in the moment all the time. In my personal experience and with clients of all ages that I've worked with, when people first start trying to be mindful, it can be incredibly frustrating because staying in the moment is such a challenge. And yet Dr. Winkle revealed that those moments of mindfulness are not when we are fully present, but noticing when we are coming back to the present, right? And we'll return, haha, to this idea more later. <laughs> so corny. (laughs) Okay, welcome to Burnout Busters, the podcast by healthcare professionals for healthcare professionals, where we talk about all things well-being. We discuss what experts, research, and personal experience say about stress in the modern day, including improvements we can make culturally, in our workplace, and for ourselves using the Adult Resilience Curriculum, or ARC. ARC is a framework that cuts through all of the noise out there about stress and well-being to provide flexible, evidence-based strategies, and supports to help you develop your own wellness plan. Burnout Busters is brought to you by the Mid-America Mental Health Technology Transfer Center, or MHTTC, funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA. All the statements expressed here are the opinions of our host and guest, not our funders. For more information about how to use this information, please see our full disclosure statement on our website. I'm Dr. Jordan Thayer. I am a psychologist, clinician, and trainer with the Mid-America MHTTC at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Hannah West. I, too, am a psychologist and clinician. I also train practitioners in Kansas and Missouri as a Mid-America MHTTC regional trainer. Once again, Jordan and I like to start off all our episodes sharing out simple and feasible things that we've done for our own well-being. So for me... We live a little bit of a drive away from my family, so it's about six hours with our baby. And I was really thinking about not spending Easter weekend with them, just because it's it's kind of a hassle, but decided to go at the last minute. And I am so glad that we did. We played outside, you know, rode rangers, swing on the swing, and just had so much fun with my siblings and my little niece and nephews. That really does sound like a lot of fun, especially for Easter weekend. And it it reminds me of our conversation with Dr. Deliza when we were focusing on values, because uh, I know that family is pretty central to who you are, Hannah. It's something that's really Mm -hmm. important. And something I admire about you is that despite that long drive and the hassle, you just did it, you know. And I call that the Nike philosophy when it comes to values. Yep. You know, sometimes you have to just do it and it's worth it. Exactly. You know, one of my bigger regrets of grad school was that I lived about 11 hours away from my family and rarely ever visited them because it seemed like such a long drive and wasn't something that I really wanted to do. And now looking back, I wish I had Mm -hmm. done it. 
Yeah. You know, I try really hard not to miss big things if possible. I, I just don't want to have those regrets. So Jordan, what have you been doing for your well-being? Yeah, you know, I wasn't ever a competitive kid growing up. And over the last few years, that seems to have changed. And so a few friends of mine and I started a virtual running club. Ooh, that sounds fun. I used to love running. Back in the day, I'd run for hours just for fun. Uh, But I can't do it anymore with my bad ankles. Maybe after surgery. And then you can do some jumping too. Mm, Maybe. Uh, But I still don't think that activity from the previous episode is something that's for me. (laughs) (laughs) But this running club, it sounds really cool. Uh, You know, community, taking care of your physical well-being. It's like Dr. Cook said in our second episode. Yeah, it is. It is fun. See, I, I was the opposite of you. I used to hate running, especially in high school and college. And I was a pretty chunky kid. At one point, I was even taken in when I was 11 or 12 to get tests for type 2 diabetes. Um, and it wasn't wow. great. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, they give you a butterfly needle. And if you haven't had one of those, it just sits in your arm and draws blood for hours. Mm. So, yeah. Anyways, mm. so now running is something that I, I really only recently picked up on. Um, have I told you about my Krispy Kreme running story? I don't think so. Okay, so that'll be a story for another time, but yeah, I've been running consistently for about the last year, and this running club has at least one Marine in it, mm. so I feel the need to have to keep pace with them, and the only way I have found that works for me when putting in the miles is actually to practice mindfulness while running. Um, so when I start getting deep into the run, you know, I repeat a mantra to myself that reminds me of why I'm doing this, so there's the values piece, and then I actually focus mm. intently on what my body is feeling, what I see and kind of just sink into a rhythm. What a perfect introduction to our interview about mindfulness with Dr. Wengel. It's almost like I planned that. (laughs) Okay, tell me (laughs) about Dr. Wengel. Dr. Stephen Wengel is originally from Omaha and attended University of Nebraska-Lincoln and University of Nebraska Medical Center. He completed his psychiatry residency and geriatric psychiatry fellowship training at Creighton University and UNMC. He's been practicing geriatric psychiatry since 1991. He sees patients in his office and at several local long-term care facilities in and around Omaha. He's an active and enthusiastic teacher of students and residents. And Dr. Wingle has also served UNMC in several administrative roles, including clerkship director and department chair. And in 2018, he became UNMC and UNO's first assistant vice chancellor for campus wellness. In this role, he is developing strategies to reduce stress and burnout in students, staff, faculty, and healthcare professionals. His vision is to improve the physical, psychological, and social well-being of all who work and learn in the healthcare world, the academic environment, and the community at large. I really hope our listeners pick up on some of the practical ways to implement mindfulness that Dr. Wingle mentions beyond just simple meditation. So let's listen. Thank you, Dr. Wingle, so much for joining us today. We are so excited to be able to talk about mindfulness with you. Let's start off with a very basic question to get us grounded. What is mindfulness? Why is it getting such popularity? And why should our listeners be engaging in this practice? 
Well, I'm really delighted to be here and to talk about this. Uh, this is an area of great interest of mine, and I don't pretend to be a, you know, a great expert on it, but I certainly am, am pretty intrigued by it. Um, I'm a geriatric psychiatrist by trade, incidentally, so uh, you know this sometimes comes up with patient care, but I also do a lot of wellness work for my institution, so I've really been uh, you know, learning more and more about mindfulness and how it can be helpful for, for, for people, whether you're you know, receiving mental health care or you're a mental... Uh, a healthcare provider yourself or what have you. So the concept of mindfulness is really not a new thing, of course. It's it's really uh, kind of an ancient principle, but I think it's been getting a lot of airplay in the last uh, number of years because of the stress that people are under. Certainly during the pandemic, uh, you know, I think everybody has felt their stress levels rise. And I think mindfulness has certainly gotten a lot more uh, attention maybe in the last year. But even before that, um, it was, it's been something on a lot of people's minds. I think of it pretty simply, you know, I, I try to keep things simple just for my own benefit and trying to understand things. And I like some of the definitions used by, um, some of the proponents and the the authors of mindfulness-based stress reduction, Drs. Kabat-Zinn and, and Richard Davidson, where they talk about mindfulness being deliberately paying attention, you know, on purpose and non-judgmentally. So paying attention on purpose without judging yourself. That's the way I look at it. Uh, and, and to me, of those of those concepts, one of the hardest ones, frankly, is the non-judgmental piece. Because we tend to be, you know, again, I can't speak for the rest of you, but it, I think uh, it's fair to say most of us tend to be sort of competitive. And, uh, you know, we tend to judge ourselves uh, as well as people around us. And, you know, to sort of just non-judgmentally look at the way you're feeling, the way you're perceiving the world in any given time. It takes some practice. It can be done, but it takes practice. Right. I identify myself as primarily an ACT therapist or acceptance commitment therapist, and mindfulness is a part of that therapy modality. And so is this idea of labeling and kind of how we understand our thoughts. And so that non-judgmental component is built right into that. And ACT would say we are hardwired to label and immediately do that, right? So it's, it's incredibly difficult. And in my practice, both personal and professional, I, there's been some pushback, I think, against mindfulness because it, it can be difficult to do that non-judgment element. I think all of the elements, honestly. Um, and for some reason, it might not even be appropriate for some individuals, whether it's children with uh, ADHD or adults with ADHD or any other sort of attentional difficulties. And I try and explain that it's it's not just about focus, though, right? There, there's a difference between mindfulness and just focusing. Right. Yeah, I think that's really true. Um, you know, uh, <clears throat> one of the things I've, I've read recently was uh, the concept of staying in the moment versus returning to the present moment. And I think one of the one of the things I got wrong when I was first learning about mindfulness was that the goal is to sort of stay in the moment all the time. That would be this ideal goal, you know, just always be in the moment and not be thinking about the past, not be thinking about the future, right? And we use all kinds of metaphors to describe that, like driving a car. You want to be looking ahead. You don't want to be looking in the rearview mirror the whole time. Yes, you have to look in the rearview mirror briefly to see what's behind you, but if you're, if you're obviously we all know what would happen if try to drive a car while you're staring at the rearview mirror. Right. Not a good way to drive a car, right? To look in the past and all the regrets you have for the stuff you didn't do right and all that, right? But by the same token, you can't really be looking too far down the road because you need to see what's happening right in front of you. 
I'm really getting some Fast and Furious vibes. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, very good. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I like that. Uh, you know, um, so it's really interesting. So I, so I had this sense that I was really doing it wrong because I'm, I've, I spend most of my time not living in the moment, you know. And then I read something recently by either Dr. Kabat-Zinn or Dr. Davidson saying, no, 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 you know, we all do that. We all do that. And so it's all about returning to the present moment. And that's the verb, returning to the present moment when you catch yourself looking in the rearview mirror too much or the or looking down the road too far. Uh, I like that idea. It gave me a lot of grace, I guess, just a lot of sense like, no, that's you're, you're doing it. You're doing it right. You're doing OK. You're doing OK. Just returning to the present moment. Yeah, I love that. That emphasis on returning to the present moment is going to be really, really important. Um, so you mentioned earlier how mindfulness is you know, a mainstream term. Uh, we're seeing it in social media, we're seeing it in news, we're seeing it literally everywhere. Uh, what are they getting right about mindfulness and, and maybe what are they getting wrong when they're talking about it? Well, I think the, the getting the getting right part, um, I, th I think the fact that it just is, it is a thing. It's, it's not, um, you know, it's not some abstract conceptual thing. It's a real thing that works. I think is something that they're getting getting right, I suppose, and it's valuable. It's really valuable. Um, it again in my line of work in healthcare, both my own practice plus working with a lot of healthcare providers and a lot of different disciplines. Um, I think the notion of focusing on that patient encounter in the moment is really important, and I think that's that's one thing they get right. Um, getting wrong, well, I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, not sure what to make of that other than perhaps, uh, you know, again, maybe this judgmental piece and maybe not getting the, the returning to the present moment part, uh, you know, would be part of it. That actually makes me think, though, of something else I, I meant to say earlier, but I guess maybe I'll sneak it in here uh, since I've, I've got, the, got, the, got the pulpit right now or whatever, the bully pulpit, I guess, right? Um, so, you know, I think we talked before one time in some previous conversation that uh, the three of us had, had about an anti-mindful moment that I personally had or a non, I guess, I'm not sure what the right uh, word is, but a, but an, but a non-mindful a non moment. So I work at, uh, you know, a university setting and I work with nurses and psychiatrists and psychologists. We had just hired a new psychologist and was really looking forward to having this person join us. So even before they landed here, I, I told our administrative assistant to put, put their sign, put their name on the door. Let's get a sign. Let's get a name tag. Put their name on the door. You know, in fact, this was even before they'd said yes. So I figured let's just kind of assume that they're going to say yes and put their name on the door because I figured that would be very welcoming. If they came for a tour, they would see their name already. They already have an office and they would feel welcomed by that. So I was patting myself on the back and thinking I was doing such a great job. Uh, and then it turns out um, I we got their name wrong. <laughs> and I, I'm a big believer in getting people's names right. You know, our name is kind of like our identity, obviously, right? And so it, I, I, I really pride myself on trying to get people's names right. We got it wrong. So just to give you an example, I won't use their real name, but let's say this is a woman and her name was Josephina. Uh, the name showed up as Joseph you know, Joseph Smith or whatever. And I walked past that name tag, I got to tell you, probably 10 or 15 times every day uh, and looked at it and said, boy, that's really great. We got their name on the door and never once did I see that we got the name wrong. So that would be an example of not being mindful. And I think part of that too, though, is, um, and you folks are psychologists, so you know this better than I do, but I think the human brain tries to be efficient, 
right? It tries to be efficient. So it makes assumptions. So he looks at, so I probably looked at the thing and saw the JOS and just kind of didn't read the rest of it because I figured, oh, well, of course it's going to say Josephina, right? So I think we make a lot of assumptions and we sort of do a lot of shorthand or shortcuts like that, which can apparently save some brain activity, but it also can work against us. So I was not in the moment there. I would, I would freely <laughs> confess that. Yeah. You know, I've been really immersed in behaviorism for the past few weeks and um, and in that discipline, what you're talking about when we are defining something, we use both exemplars and non-exemplars. And so that would be a non-exemplar. <laughs> and I just love that you shared that with us, just like an example of what it means to not be right. in the moment. Well, and I, I would say... I was going to say, we're just getting warmed up. I've got thousands of those examples. But anyway, but keep going. <laughs> keep going. But that's enough. That's enough. No, I was just going to comment on you're right about the brain is efficient. I would, I would replace the word efficient with predictive. And that's part of the problem sometimes, right, is you read Joe's, that first JOS, and then predicted the rest of it. Um, and going back to your car analogy, when you're looking forward ahead, so much of our requirements when we're driving is to be somewhat right predictive of what's happening in front of us in order to be responsive. But if we're, as you said, predicting too far out, then we're not attentive to the car that's changing lanes right in front of us and doesn't have their blinker on, right? We can't react and can't really be in the moment. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to share that. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. That's a better way of looking at it. I like that, predictive, yeah, makes sense. And so when we were talking earlier, you were sharing about this, the mantra that you have. And I think it, it's in psychiatry, maybe it's UNMC. And I was wondering if you could just kind of talk about that real quick. Yeah, so I've got, uh, again, I realize it's an audio podcast, so the listeners can't see this, but I'm holding up, uh, you know, a sign that sits on my desk that says, be here now. It's a little placard kind of sign. Be here now. And this is something our, our healthcare campus uh, has been promoting for a while. We brought in some outside consultants to help improve our culture. And one of the pieces of the culture was um, a little bit of mini mindfulness training because we all get distracted. We multitask. We, uh, well, again, I won't ask you for true confessions, but, you know, in this last year of Zoom meetings, um, how many of us are checking email when we're at a Zoom meeting, uh -huh. right? You know, I'm seeing some head nods. Yeah, mm -hmm. I do it. We all do it, which you wouldn't do probably if you were in a live meeting back in the good old days when we used to have these live meetings and everybody sat around the same table. Yes, you could surreptitiously check your, your, your phone you know, emails <laughs> once in a while, but, but, you, but you'd sort of get called out if you were sitting there staring at your phone during the whole meeting. You, you couldn't get away with that. But now we can. And so even before the pandemic, our institution realized that, uh, you know, if we're not if we don't have our eye on the ball, so to speak, you know, if we're not paying attention now, bad things happen. You either don't you miss uh, you miss out on the richness of a, of a conversation with a colleague. You miss patient care things, whatever, you know, uh, so just a reminder. And I think the other piece of this that I like is the fact that they made up, I don't know, a couple hundred of these uh, desk plaques telling us to be here now suggests that I'm not the only one that needs that reminding. <laughs> and, you know, one, one last thing on the reminder thing is I read a quote recently in another context. I always think it's so interesting when you read thing in one, it's something in one context and then you can immediately apply it to a different context. Um, Samuel Johnson, Dr. Samuel Johnson, sometimes just referred to colloquially as Dr. Johnson, was uh, 18th century uh, poet, playwright, essayist, uh, you know, just a really prolific writer. And apparently Samuel Johnson said something like, most people need reminding more than they need 
instructing, something like that. I'm, I'm probably getting the words a little wrong, but we need to be reminded more than we need to be instructed. I know that's true for me, um, that, you know, I'm in the wellness biz, right? And yet I need to remind myself to be here now, uh, to take care of myself, to get enough sleep, to get some exercise, uh, to do my own practice of mindfulness and meditation and all that, because we all get busy, I think. We get busy and distracted, and we don't always attend to those things, so I need reminding. I think part of it is really looking at efficiency. And so, so many people and so many organizations, it seems like Western culture is just so um, cognizant of being efficient. And so that means that we're always looking at how do we do multiple things? How do we multitask? How do we get this done uh, while we're doing these other things? And it kind of reminds me um, of like our medical system. And so, you know, we have our appointments with our physicians, with our doctors, and we go in and, you know, they talk to us, but for sake of efficiency, they're also writing the notes. They're also kind of doing all of these other pieces. Um, and so it just feels like it is, um, you know, counterintuitive to being mindful and in the moment. Right. Yes. Yes. Couldn't agree more. And, you know, a uh, major revolution has happened in healthcare, you know, going back about 10 years now for at least in our healthcare system, you know, roughly 10, 12 years ago, most healthcare systems as part of the Affordable Care Act converted to electronic health records. Some systems have done it before, but anyway, a lot of systems like ours did it about 10, 12 years ago. And electronic health records, uh, EHRs as we affectionately call them, um, are very efficient in many ways. They can store lots of data, you can search them, whereas you couldn't search an old-fashioned paper chart. Um, one of the reasons for developing electronic health records was for electronic prescribing. Some of those jokes that we've all heard about doctors' handwriting, physicians' handwriting, are true, unfortunately. That I always pitied pharmacists that had to try to decipher our handwriting on a prescription. And, you know, and it actually can become dangerous because if they misinterpret something we write, the patient may get the wrong dose or the wrong medication, and that's not right. So there's a lot of good things about electronic health records. The downside is that uh, a number of time motion studies have found that uh, the average primary care physician um, is spending something like 60 to 90 minutes um, of so-called pajama time from home finishing up their, their progress notes. So if I'm a busy internist, I'm a psychiatrist, but let's say I'm an internist or a family physician where I have 30 patients to see in a day, I don't have time to document all those patients. You have to document, you have to, you know, that's part of good patient care is documentation. But I don't have time during the day to do that because patients want to be seen, you know, as close to their appointment time as possible. So that means a lot of primary care docs will see their patients, you know, close up the office, go home, have dinner with their family, and then at 9 or 10 o'clock at night, turn on the computer from home and finish their work. Once in a while, we can all do that. We're all used to working from home and working after hours when we need to, but doing that day in and day out, it's not really a good thing. It's not really good for our wellness. So that's one of the things, and I think this will get better as we come up with better, more efficient electronic record systems, but that's one of them. Let me just add, though, one other thing that that reminded me of. Um, <clears throat> Uh, again, I wish I could pull it up and show everybody that's listening, but I saw a one of the pithiest uh, ways of, of encapsulating this or looking at how that's an anti-mindful thing when you're, as you mentioned, Hannah, too, when you're in the middle of a patient encounter and the physician or the PA or the nurse practitioner is busy typing away into the computer while that you're trying to tell them your symptoms. 
Uh, I saw a picture that I think a, like a six or seven year old child drew of going to a medical appointment where their parent, I think it was their mother, was talking to the doctor, the physician. And uh, so this child draws what the, the encounter looks like. And the encounter, sadly, was, you know, mother sitting on the exam table telling her symptoms and physician with his back to the patient uh, looking at a computer typing away. And sadly, that happens all too often. So that, that does not help you be in the moment, right, uh, or be here now. No, no. And, you know, I, that, I was almost kind of going back to my prediction idea here is like I was predicting that that's what you were going to say, that the physician's back was to the patient because I've seen that. And that's just kind of what ends up happening. And to go back to what Dr. West was saying about how our culture improves efficiency or values efficiency to maybe to our own detriment. It, it makes me wonder though, that what, what seems to have happened with the EHR development is that we've got this new technology and we had this new impetus to use it and, and within um, a way to kind of universalize or standardize this whole approach. And what replaced the inefficiencies of the old system was just more. Right. It was just more. Now that we're more efficient, right. now we're going to fill it with more time, more patients instead of using that efficiency to focus on what's actually beneficial, which is quality time with the patient. Right. Right. Couldn't agree more because, you know, in my discussions with my uh, physician colleagues, but also, again, nurse practitioners, uh, PAs and others in, in the, on the front lines, they will usually tell you if we have a deep enough conversation. I mean, oftentimes the conversation starts out with, you know, uh, you know, feeling burned out, feeling overworked and so forth. But if we dig down deep enough and talk long enough, sooner or later, we'll come to a point where they'll say, you know, I really like taking care of patients. I mean, this is a fundamentally fulfilling job. It is uh, in many ways, again, whether you're psychologist, physician, PA, nurse practitioner, this is the best job on the planet, in my opinion. Uh, it is, you know, we get to help people and, and uh, you know, see them improve and so forth. It's very fulfilling. That piece, you know, that, that encounter with that other person that we're trying to help is really f intrinsically fulfilling. But there are so many layers added on to it, you know, bureaucratic and otherwise, that uh, get in the way. And so sometimes we then look at the whole patient encounter as a negative thing. And it's, it, it isn't really. The, the, the work we do should still, be, should still be fulfilling. But sometimes we forget that in uh, the midst of all the distractions that we have. Um, as an, as a, uh, I think we used an automotive metaphor earlier, so that reminds me of this other metaphor. Um, a practice group in, uh, actually at the University of Colorado, their family medicine department decided to do uh, a, a really intensive um, uh, revamp or overhaul of the way they did their practice. So they hired scribes, actually medical assistants that they trained as scribes, and so every physician had uh, two scribes that would work with them and they would go between two different exam rooms. And the physician really did not have to touch the computer. That was their goal was the physician or the PA or the nurse practitioner did not need to touch the computer during the patient encounter. So the uh, provider would come in, talk to the patient about their sore throat or their backache or their whatever. And they would be sitting there making eye contact and just listening to them. The whole time there was a scribe sort of off in the corner that was doing the computer interface piece. 
And so it's not rocket science, but it really worked. And so they did all the sorts of really interesting, uh, you know, analyses of this. And, and after about six months or a year of this, the burnout rates for the physicians went down from 50 some percent, about 15, one five. So dramatic. It took a while. It didn't happen overnight, but it took a while. The patient scores, the patient uh, experience went dramatically up because the patients were able to say, gee, my doctor's really listening to me and uh, they loved it. Physicians actually saw more patients in a day because they didn't have to spend all this time wrestling with, uh, you know, an inefficient electronic health record. But even some of their other metrics, like looking at, uh, you know, uh, blood sugars in patients with diabetes got better and uh, more people had colonoscopies and so forth. It's simply a matter of attention. People were, the physicians were paying more attention to those things, uh, like did this person get their colonoscopy yet or their mammogram yet or whatever, because they could, they weren't distracted by some of this other stuff. One of the best quotes of that whole survey, they, they, they got quotes from the, the physicians and one of them said, you know, we didn't realize how distracted we were until we weren't anymore. And in retrospect, it was like we were texting while driving. And we all know that texting while driving is not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about organizational policies. So how can we streamline the workflow by maybe hiring scribes, hiring different people? How can we de-implement policies and practices to where we're not having to go back and finish our notes when we're in our pajamas at night? Um, But I'm wondering kind of beyond those organizational pieces, how does an individual practitioner incorporate mindfulness into their daily work? That's, I think, um, one of the main things I'm trying to focus on right now with, uh, you know, my colleagues who are busy, you know, physicians and nurses and nurse practitioners, PAs, you know, they're all busy. And sometimes when I when I give them, a, I, I do a lot of workshops, you know, a lot of wellness workshops or resilience workshops. And people oftentimes will say, boy, those are great ideas. And I know I should do X, Y, and Z. I should exercise more. I should meditate and I should do my... But I just don't have time. And they feel like it's an added burden to them. And, and that's the last thing you want to do is add on something, add on a wellness activity that turns out to be anti-wellness because it's one more thing on their to-do list, right? So one thing I read recently from uh, a, a, a couple of radiologists actually wrote in a radiology journal. Radiologists are quite busy too. You know, they're reading x-rays all day and they may have a quota of how many x-rays to read and so forth. So they said, you know, we, we like the concept of building in micro practices during the day. Um, as compared to maybe a macro practice, if you want to use that term of 20 or 30 minutes of meditation of the day, you know, this is a micro practice. So, for example, you know, you're turning on your computer. We were talking earlier b- before we started taping on of some IT issues that one of us was having. You know, computer blew up on him, right? We all have those days. But the more typical thing is you're, you're, you're late for something. You're late for a patient appointment or whatever. And you're booting up your computer for the first time, and it seems like it's taking an eternity. It's really not, but it just seems like it's taking a long time. That is a great time to do two or three nice, slow, deep breaths. You know, you've got to wait anyway, so just take the time to do it. That would be an example of a micro practice. And specifically, what I tell people to do is, you know, get used to sort of really slow breathing, like count to six as you inhale, count to six as you exhale. Not out loud, just inside your head. Do that two or three or four times. T- takes Even if you did four of those, that takes a grand total of a minute. And if you build that in two or three times a day, it's surprising how much good that can do for you. It turns on your parasympathetic nervous system temporarily, the, the rest and digest. You know, we're all familiar with the fight or flight system, but this is the rest and digest system, and it just sort of calms you down. You know, not forever, 
but it's and it's not a cure-all but it's but the little micro practices kind of build on one another and i think it really kind of adds up and to link back to stuff that we were talking about earlier when we're again talking about how when we're not being here now and our mind is elsewhere we're focusing on the future of the past that moment when we're turning on the computer and we're waiting for it the reason why we're anxious is because we're already thinking about all the stuff that we have to do once when it's on right and so we're already in that mindset and so you're right noticing those times throughout the day where we're falling into this like this future or past orientation bringing awareness to that and then yes coming back to the moment with these breathing exercises i feel like I get a lot of pushback against breathing. You know, I hear this a lot. Just like, you want me to just breathe through everything. And (laughs) yeah, yes. Like take, take some time and slow down. And it'd be, I think that's an amazing, amazingly simple, feasible thing to do. As you said, just kind of these like little micro practices, incredibly helpful. Well, yeah, I found it helpful myself in my own, just my own life. And again, I, I, in all honesty and all transparency, I don't always practice what I preach. I have those days when I forget to do it frequently. Well, here's another thing. So this reminded me too, when I'm booting up my computer in the morning, you know, we have to type in the password and all that. I try to do that. I, for some reason, I, I just find myself typing really, really fast to try to get that done. And more often than not, the faster I do it, the more I make an error. And I don't even realize I'm making an error. So I have to do it three times. Well, that wasn't really very efficient after all. So that's kind of, I've tried to learn that, uh, trying to use that as a cue to remind myself like, okay, Steve, take take a breath. It's okay. Do it a little slower which in turn reminds me of uh, a a bit of wisdom that one of my nurse friends said. uh, uh, She used to do a lot of counseling of um, family members, typically spouses of Alzheimer's disease patients that we see in our clinic. So let's say you're the the spouse of someone with Alzheimer's disease, you're taking care of them in in your home. And you're trying to get ready for a for a let's say a dentist appointment in the afternoon and you're running just a little bit late so you get a little bit frazzled and so then you approach your spouse the one with alzheimer's disease say come on honey we got to get going we got to see the dentist we're running late and because of your anxiety guess what happens to that person with alzheimer's disease that that anxiety translates to them sort of locking up and and uh feeling kind of frazzled and when they get frazzled they may simply lock up and not be able to do anything or process anything and they just sort of stand there and do the deer in the headlights thing which in turn makes you get angry because then you're you feel like they're not helping you and they're then we're going to get even later and so it, it escalates your anxiety and it turns into this vicious circle. And so the phrase this nurse used to use with those folks is to say something like, go slow, it's faster. And I think, boy, four little words, but I think go slow, it's faster. There's so many things in our lives like that, right? Like me typing my password into the computer. If I go slow, it's actually faster in the long run as compared to me trying to type real fast and making a mistake. Mm-hmm. But I need reminding. I need reminding almost every day about that. And I don't think there's anything that, I mean, there's no shame in acknowledging, right, that we all need reminders. That's the whole point of some of this stuff is we recognize what's helpful for us. And now we just need to figure out how do we incorporate it in a feasible way. And I, I do the same thing. As you were talking about the password, I was reflecting today. I think I probably put mine in two or three times just trying to log in because I did the same thing. Um, I was also under other pressure because I was like noticing problems with <laughs> my computer. Um, but I, I, yeah, I'm just sitting here being like, yeah, I could have easily have saved time 
by just going slower the first time through. Totally. I think that's part of the misconception of mindfulness is that, you know, it's not something that you do just in the moment. Um, But the misconception is that it, you know, you have to have an hour to go do hot yoga or you have to have 20 minutes to sit and do a guided meditation uh, when really, you know, you just need 10 seconds to just come back to the present. I, th- I think that's really so, so true. I really, th- I'm glad you said that. And um, which, which, in, which in turn reminds me again, like I say, I don't have a lot of original ideas, but I read a lot of stuff from other, from smart people that really have good original ideas and I kind of steal good ideas from. So I remember reading um, a post from a clinical psychologist that says uh, he likes to remind himself and his patients and his loved ones to sometimes just take a minute or even a half a minute out of their busy day and just literally take stock. You know, how am I feeling? Literally just stop looking at the computer for a minute and say, okay, just, I'm just going to feel how my body's feeling. What is my, what does the chair feel like under my, my seat? You know, what, what do my feet feel like on the, on the floor? The, you know, basic mindfulness sort of things, but even things like, you know, if I were doing it right now, I would be sitting in my, I am sitting in my, I am literally right now sitting in my office on the university and I can look out the window and it's a bright sunny day and I can see trees getting ready to put out, uh, you know, leaves and so forth. Occasionally I can see a robin, you know, getting a worm, you know, that sort of thing. But I can also just say the temperature in my office is really good right now. I've got plenty of light. My computer, thankfully, is working. So all of which leads to the, the, the idea of saying to yourself, I'm all right right now. That was the na- that was the na- the title of his post. I'm all right right now. I don't know how I'll be an hour from now or at the end of the day, but I can say I can say with some certainty I'm all right right now. And I like that. To me, that's a mindfulness thing. Here's another mindfulness example that I uh, just kind of stumbled on this weekend. I like to get out and take walks. You know, I like being outside. For me, being outside outdoors in nature which incidentally is an ACT thing. I like the ACT matrix, uh, Jordan. We talked a little bit about ACT. I like the ACT matrix, and I know the, the Y-axis, this is kind of insiders, you know, psychotherapy speak, so I apologize for anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about. But get the book, The ACT Matrix. It's a great book. The Y-axis on this is, uh, you know, either living inside your head or experiencing life through your five senses. And that's a reminder for me to, the more I can, I can actually observe life through my five senses rather than sitting around stewing about things inside my own head, the better off I feel. So I was taking a walk this weekend and noticing, and that's what a lot of this, a lot of what, what, a lot of what ACT seems to be about is noticing, right? Noticing things. So I was noticing the trees at this time. So we're in eastern Nebraska. This time of year, not too many trees have leaves out, but but there is a, a tree, and I think it's the red maple. I'm not a horticulturist, but I think it might be the red maple, that if you look for it, it has subtle red flowers. And you have to look for them because they're very, very small. And so I actually took a picture of that and posted on Twitter. I don't do a lot of Twitter posts. I'm not a big social media person. but I figured, And I said, you know, we're all looking for green things this time of year. It's spring. We, you know, the grass is greening. We're looking for green things. Great. Nothing wrong with that. But I like to challenge myself to look for the colors that we don't normally think of. So I challenge people to look for red things in the environment right now. That's my little mindfulness. That's a little mindfulness game I play with myself sometimes. Look for look for something that is not sort of typically something that you just see. You have to kind of put a little extra effort into it. You know what? That actually lines up very, very well, though, with an activity that we do in the very first episode. Dr. Arya Fiat was talking about how she works every day to try and identify something new 
or um, interesting that she didn't notice before. And that's, again, a mindful component. And this just brings me to this point that I think I just want to make sure is really kind of like uh, salient and that people listening understand, which is that when we talk about these well-being practices like mindfulness or in the episode prior about values, all of these things, they're all interconnected. It's really hard to be in connect like in connection with your values. It's really hard to connect and build social supports if we're also not being mindful in the moment. And we have so many things distracting us nowadays, right? It's hard to connect with nature. I There's a ton of research, I don't know if you've looked into this, on how the connection to nature literally affords adult well-being. That being out there has this huge impact on us but if you're if you're out walking around and you're listening to your iPhone and reading text messages, you're not right. Like if you have all these things going on, you're not absorbing the benefit of that moment if you're not being mindful. Yeah, I I, I, I love hearing other people say that because I look I you know I'm I, I'm no I'm no luddite. I like my iPhone. I like <laughs> books on tape. I like listening to music. I've got a set of Bose you know headphones. And yet when I go out for walks or bike rides, I really like to disconnect and I really like to pay attention to what's going on around me. And, uh, you know, and you're right, there is, I remember reading, there's a British study a couple of years ago that's looked at British citizens and found that people in Great Britain that spend two hours a week or more, so two hours a week, about 15 minutes a day, roughly, outside were happier and physically healthier. So both mentally hap- uh, healthier and physically healthier. And then there's uh, this other line of, of uh, research, which I, I just know a little bit about that you may have heard about too, called uh, forest bathing. I don't know if you've heard that term, forest bathing. I actually oh, yeah, read about definitely. that in like the newspaper, not in, right? And that's a Japanese concept and it translates, I, I won't pretend to, to say the Japanese word. When I give this talk incidentally to medical students, I talk about forest bathing. I always say, wait, wait, let me get, let me be clear. It has nothing to do with water or nudity. So it's just, it's uh, about bathing yourself in, in nature. So, you know, they found in Japan that if you just kind of hang out in a wooded area, even if you're not, exer- we know exercise is good for the brain and good for our, our mental health, but even if you just sort of hang out in an, in a natural setting, your cortisol level tends to drop, your blood pressure tends to drop and so forth. And there's just something kind of magical about that. So I really do think, and especially being spring now, at least the time when we're recording this, I think it's just such a great time to get outside. You know, even if it's five, 10 minutes, you don't have to do an hour long walk or a half hour long jog. You know, if you get out even a few minutes, it's good for you. Yeah. You know, I could sit here all day and I don't know about Dr. Thayer, but and just listen to you talk about mindfulness and all of these um, really practical ways that we can bring it into our lives. Um, but we do want to be respectful of your time. Uh, so I'm just wondering, do you have any like final takeaways, like a mantra or an acronym that we can take away from this uh, when we're thinking about using mindfulness in our day to day? Well, thank you for, for that I, for that opportunity and that reminder. So um, two things. So again, I would come back to that, uh, you know, I'm all right right now. That's kind of a nice mantra, I think. Um, but here's the other one that, that I think uh, is also good to remember. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm pretty good at borrowing or stealing other people's ideas. So I'll borrow this one, but I'll give full credit. So Dr. Richard Davidson, again, one of the creators and authors of Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, MBSR. It's like so, such an important thing, it has its own acronym. So MBSR, 
He's up at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and as I understand it, they have a program there called the Center for Healthy Minds. And uh, among many different things they do, one of the things that really impressed me is they have uh, apparently these these signs, that I, I think of them like bumper sticker size signs, all over their campus uh, that are in the school colors, and they simply have three numerals on there, five, three, and one, five, three, one. And that's their reminder to do practice five minutes of meditation or mindfulness a day, um, to write down three things you're grateful for that happened that day. So gratitude journaling, that's a whole separate thing. And then one act of kindness toward another person a day. So five minutes of meditation, three things you're grateful for that you write down, one act of kindness. And they simply plaster these signs all over. So you might be you might be in the bathroom, in the bathroom stall, might be in a stairwell, might be over the doorway of a classroom at the University of uh, Wisconsin, you know, that sort of thing. And I thought, what a great idea. I would really love to do something like that in my office or my campus here too. Because again, remember what Dr. Samuel Johnson said, we all need reminding more than instructing. We kind of know what to do, but I think we just need those reminders. So maybe there's a way we could all build that in, build in a little reminder in your office or your home space just to practice a little bit of deep breathing and going out in nature. If we did those two things reliably, I think we'd be happier and healthier. Yeah, I, I kind of was joking, but I'm very serious when I say I'll probably get that tattooed like on the inside forearm, that <laughs> permanent reminder all the time. But I, I really do like that, especially the five minutes of meditation. Just to be clear, that doesn't have to be sitting down on like a cushion with your legs crossed. That can be something you embed in your day to day. And it, it really can be that easily uh, accessible and implementable. Um, I, I really like that idea. And I agree that maybe we can do that even here at the medical center and some sort of similar campaign, right? Kind of contribute to a bit of that cultural change that seems to be needed at this moment. Well, Dr. Weigel, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we really appreciate you coming and talking with us about mindfulness. And um, we are really excited to, to use some of the mantras, use that 531. I'm just so thrilled to have all of these takeaways. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to be here. I enjoyed myself a lot. The time just flew by from my point of view. Uh, thank you so much for this opportunity and uh, great, great working with both of you. Great to have you. Take care. Dr. Wingle had such a great perspective on mindfulness, and I know that for many people, mindfulness can be a loaded term. There is a lack of time feeling like it's another should or ought that we have to do, or feeling like it's just disconnected from daily life. I mean, how many people hear mindfulness and think, are you kidding me? You want me to stop in the middle of my workday and start saying ohms? Like, come on. There's a bunch of real and I think also perceived barriers to it. Yeah. You know, you mentioned time, but also cost and what people think the format has to be. So you mentioned ohms in the office, but I'm also thinking the perception that mindfulness is an hour of hot yoga every Tuesday. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But to help combat some of those barriers, I really think that Dr. Wingle provided some feasible and practical strategies. So let's recap those for our listeners. Well, the first thing he talked about was using the mantra, be here now. And that captures the essence of mindfulness really well, although I think I would modify it based on what we were talking about at the start of this episode. So I would change it to return here now. Mm. And, you know, I could go on and on about mm. this phenomenon called the default mode network. Jordan, not again. Oh, come on. I'll keep it short. 
Your tangents are never short. So our default mode kicks in <laughs> when we're being mindless and daydreaming and on autopilot and therefore requires the least amount of mental energy. For most of us, this default mode is preoccupied with thoughts of future and past, but doesn't try to solve those worries or make any plans or change anything. It just ruminates on them and paints our world in shades of gray and black, kind of like always wearing a pair of dark sunglasses and looking out at the world through them. So it takes more energy to return here now and take those glasses off, but the benefits are so worth it. Okay, I'll give you a pass this time. That was really good information, and I'm just sitting <laughs> here you, imagining baby. myself just whipping those glasses off. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Dr. Wingle also noted how we talk to ourselves and how it impacts our ability to be present. So I can say, I'm all right right now. And that takes the pressure off thinking about the future, what's next on my to-do list, or what I need to be doing. I'm all right right now. And it's just really focusing on this present moment. I just, I love mindfulness and like the control it gives you back to, you know? So Mm -hmm. the last thing I want to emphasize is this idea of going fast by going slow. Uh, Mainstream American Western culture is so preoccupied with efficiency and optimization. We talk about this with Dr. Wengel. And at the societal level, this isn't always a bad thing. It has elements of progression in there. And same at the individual level. It can sometimes be quite beneficial to be efficient and optimize our time. But there are also some very real downsides. And I encourage everyone listening to start experimenting with purposefully slowing down aspects of your life and see what it does for you. I like that challenge. And then to keep on brand, my favorite thing that he talked about was the 531 activity. Five minutes of mindfulness or meditation, three good things that have happened, and one act of kindness. You know, I really hope you get that tattoo. I do have a compass tattoo that is related to values, so maybe I'll put this 531 somewhere next to it. I wish I was brave enough. I don't have any tattoos. I'm slightly tempted, (laughs) but really, let's be honest, I'm probably too much of a chicken to follow through. But I really do think that this activity helps give a practical way to build in those mindful moments throughout the day and just thinking about what's going on in this present moment. Yeah, so like, like a running group has helped me get better with running. It helps to practice mindfulness by surrounding ourselves with others who do it too. And even having someone to mentor and guide you in incorporating it into your life and in your job in a way that works for you. And that idea of community and mentorship is what we're going to talk about with our guest in the next episode, which drops in a couple weeks. As always, tag us on the socials using the hashtag MHTTC Bye Bye Burnout with your thoughts about the episode, how you practice your own well-being and mindfulness, along with any tips you want to share. Each time you use the hashtag, your name will be entered to win a physical copy of the MHTTC ARC workbook. And coming up, we'll be starting our 30-day burnout busting challenge. We will draw winners after the challenge ends. To learn more about burnout busters, our partners, resources, and the challenge, visit our website that is linked in the show notes. We hope you got some good takeaways from this episode, and we will be back soon. So I was thinking about, uh, in in a consultation with this group out in Colorado, they asked me, like, what is your, like, long-term vision about professional well-being? And I Mm -hmm. told them, I was like, you know, nobody second guesses happy hour. If you go up to a friend, you're like, hey, let's go to happy hour. Everyone's like, yeah, let's do it. It's at 4 o'clock. There's, like, you know, cheaper uh, food and drink. And it's just, like, a cultural thing. Uh And I would love for that to be 
the same way people approach things in well-being, um, like mindfulness, where everyone's like, hey, I just need to do a mindful practice. And your buddy's like, yeah, let's let's do that. Let's stop. Or, you know, or having a space in your room where everyone's like, let's go and just chill in this relaxation office, you know, this this chill office that we have in our clinic. Like, I would just love for that to become the norm. Yeah, it's too bad there's not two-for-one mindfulness practices like there are two-for-one beers. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> oh, man. How do we do that? How do we make that? Well, you know, it'd be really nice. <laughs> we need to figure that out. That's 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 the secret. You just came up with the secret, Hannah, is how do we make a two-for-one? All right, should we actually record this? <laughs> like, should we actually get... <laughs>